Hi everyone, welcome to Moving Beyond Pandemic, the podcast from the Migration Policy Institute that looks at how COVID-19 is reshaping all aspects of human movement from tourism and business travel to labour migration and mobility. I'm Megan Benton, I'm the Research Director for MPI's International Work and for our sister organisation MPI Europe. So pre-pandemic we were living in a hyper-global world. There were one and a half billion international tourism trips in 2019, 272 million international migrants, nearly 40 million flights. The drop in cross-border mobility since the onset of the pandemic has been just staggering. Some are estimating uh, a drop in 80% in travel and tourism in 2020. Permanent migration flows are down by 46%, according to the OECD, at least in the first half of 2020. One of the recurring themes of this podcast has been whether and how it will be possible to return to pre-pandemic levels of mobility, how to do this safely, how to do this in a way that attracts public trust. But there's a looming question underneath all of this, which is, will we ever return to normal? And how much was our way of life, so the cheap flights, the business trips, the normalisation of long-distance migration, the fact that people like me, (laughs) living transnational lives split between two or more countries, how much was all of this responsible for the way that the pandemic swept and then crippled the globe so, so rapidly? I spoke with Michael Clemens and Thomas Ginn from the Centre for Global Development about some deep dive research they've done on how travel and globalisation contributes to the spread of pandemics. They asked the provocative question of how much you'd need to cut cross-border mobility to curb the spread of future pandemics. I also probed them a bit on whether travel restrictions can work in emergency times and in different phases of the pandemic. Hi, Michael. Hi, Thomas. Hello. Hi, Megan. Hi. Thanks so much for joining me. You recently wrote a a terrific paper about international travel and migration and the spread of pandemics. Um, I just thought we could start by talking a bit about it. What's your overall argument? Great. Thank you. Thank you again so much for having us. So, yeah, we wrote this question kind of motivated by the question of after COVID and kind of uh, when there are no more kind of pandemic diseases to be worried about that are that are ongoing, what should international travel and and migration kind of really look like? So we know that there's kind of uh, it, it's intuitive to think about uh, disease is spread through international travel, and so may more international travel must maybe mean more spread of the of the disease, and so should. Uh, travel be reduced uh, in order to prevent uh, spread of the disease. So the specific question is whether permanently reducing uh, mobility in time periods between kind of known pandemics uh, could reduce mortality uh, for the the, the country of, of incoming travel. And so we use both a simple model and uh, examining the empirics of pandemics from 1889, 1918, 1957, and 2009 to to kind of uh, come to some some initial uh, conclusions and, and points of view here. So the, our punchline really is that reducing mobility could delay the expected arrival date. 
But it's really important to think about that the magnitude of this might be really small. So for instance, reducing travel by 50%, that's a really draconian impact of reducing travel, might buy say one to two weeks of, of delay uh, for the disease arriving. But then when we look at the, the impacts on uh, the, the final mortality and the overall uh, impact that we think is kind of most meaningful, we don't see that this delay would have meaningful impacts on the, the total mortality once the pandemic is uh, is kind of finally gone. Can I jump in, uh, Megan? Please. I, I, I want to uh, just uh, highlight a, a point that Thomas is making, which is that we, we are not talking about uh, travel during a, an, a pandemic emergency. That, that is, we're not asking uh, what should the U.S. policy toward travel uh, have been in February or March of 2020. We're asking if the extent of globalization as manifested in human mobility last year uh, let's say uh, August of 2019, if the if the interconnectedness of of, of uh, people in the world through travel and and migration uh, before the pandemic happened, before anybody knew when it was going to happen, before anybody knew from where it was going to happen, is associated with greater harm when the pandemic uh, hits. And you know, as Thomas said, it's it's so intuitive for people to think, look, uh, this pathogen comes by travelers. The more travel there is, the more chance there is for a pathogen to arrive. Uh, and you're trading off the the private benefits of globalization with the public harms of uh, of, uh, of of sickness and death. And in that sense, limiting globalization in general, uh, not emergency travel restrictions once a pandemic hits, but before it even hits. Could be thought of along the same lines as as a speed limit of, uh, for your car. That 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 is set in order to, to trade off the benefits of faster travel against the public costs of of uh, of, of risk of, of accidents and and that sort of thing. And uh, really, you can see uh, what Thomas is saying is that we're arguing that it's it's not like a, a speed limit uh, at all. In that the the uh, we don't we don't see a public health benefit from limiting. Uh, migration and mobility in general before the pandemic strikes. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I definitely want to push you on the question of emergency limitations as well, because I think that's the the policy question on the table, the one that most people are interested in, and where we are in this in this current pandemic. But just to take your point on its own terms, so if we had had this speed limit on travel and mobility. Um, and there had been more of a delay, um, would that potentially have been advantageous for certain countries who got COVID later? I mean, it was one of the arguments that's often made that a, del a delay can be quite valuable. It buys you time to prepare other policy interventions and learn lessons from other places. And this pandemic has been a, a rocket speed pandemic. You know, we've had vaccines developed in six months, is it possible that a delay could actually be quite valuable? So this is this is a great question, uh, kind of exactly uh, the, the way we're, we're trying to think about, about this as well. So exactly as you say, that if we kind of uh, left, uh, left travel kind of going, then we would, um, if we reduced travel at all, we would expect uh, some delay in the arrival of, of, of the disease. And could that buy us uh, some kind of time. So we would first definitely advocate kind of continuous 
uh, preparation and, you know, continuous kind of learning from other countries, kind of regardless of, of the, the, the time and when, when, the, when the pandemic starts, that that's just uh, really important in general. The, the key point that we're trying to make here is that reducing travel by any kind of meaningful amount uh, e- even if you reduced it drastically, would only buy a very small amount of time. So we're talking about one or two weeks, uh, potentially with a, a reduction of about 50%. And so in that time window, what we're what the regressions that we're running and kind of the empirics are showing is that we eventually kind of don't see that that slight delay really has an impact at the the kind of conclusion of the pandemic. So that's essentially the the question that we're trying to answer with some of these empirics here is when we do see this delay from reduce from countries that kind of have less incoming travel versus more incoming travel, uh, do we see that those countries then are uh, kind of have lower mortality at the end? And we really just just don't see that from from the empirics directly. And, and not just that, but the so we're finding just no systematic benefit. Although, as you say, in principle, there could be a benefit. It could be that one or two weeks allows you to do something critical. But beyond that, I want to highlight that what we're talking about here is is measures that would drastically restrict for an indefinite period uh, all mobility uh, for for many years, perhaps decades before such an event. That's what would produce uh, this. Uh, this 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 hypothetical benefits that, that we can't see. So the, really, we're talking about absolutely enormous, uh, uh, not just economic losses, but but potentially losses for pandemic surveillance, potentially losses for the the uh, the the global uh, interchange of, of scientific knowledge and expertise, whose fruits we are are now seeing in these uh, in this global effort to to develop a vaccine. The loss of all of, of that. Uh, over an indefinite period, when we don't know where the, the pandemic is going to come from, when we don't know when it's going to strike, uh, just so that we could get one or two weeks when it finally does strike, is uh, that that the benefit better be large? And on top of that, we can't even detect a benefit. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a real target here with that argument? So I haven't actually seen anyone propose attacks on on globalization, attacks on travel. Um, of the kind that you outline in the paper, what are the kind of real world interventions that are actually on the table that you have in mind here? But believe it or not, there are uh, economists who have proposed uh, such things. Uh, I do. Uh, I'm not in the right circles. Clearly, that, uh, there's a uh, there's a, a seminar uh, next week that I'm going to attend uh, in, in Australia with some of the leading thinkers on, on global migration, asking if it's now an end of an era of global mobility, uh, and and is that a good thing, uh, given that we are so, so salient to so many of us now, are the potential costs of of, of people moving so freely across borders? Uh, that's uh, certainly in the past we've seen. A, a very extensive, uh, long-lasting uh, measures to to limit or block migration, justified by by health concerns, uh, not, not during a, a health crisis, but for long afterward. Uh, one that comes to mind is is the Chinese exclusion era of the United States, which went on for 83 years, several generations, and at the at, at the at its beginning was was justified 
by many politicians with some real health crises that did occur when when uh, when typhus, so leprosy, uh, syphilis in in isolated cases did uh, come via Chinese travelers to California. But that that the 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 response of very severely restricting that entire migration corridor for many generations was was just wildly disproportionate and and longer lasting than the crisis even if if it had been justified during the crisis and that that is also questionable i mean is there perhaps um is is one potential real world application right now conversations about whether passengers should be paying for covid testing or any costs that would be associated with having a vaccine as a requirement for moving those sorts of things will inadvertently mean that people pay more for their travel i mean as will just the cost of flights going up um travel is likely to be more expensive but not in the form of a tax those sound entirely appropriate to me. Although we 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 have not studied uh, uh, the, the 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 economics of such measures, I I, I don't think that a that a a vaccine requirement to travel is a is, is a draconian limitation on globalization. Many many countries have required you to get a a yellow fever vaccine in the Americas in order to go there for 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 decades. Certainly since I was a boy and long before, and that that hasn't. Uh, that hasn't uh, uh, crippled mobility in, in, in this region, uh, but but I, I think what we're uh, what we're certain to see is over for many years to come, the uh, still extraordinarily strong uh, anti-migrant movement in in many countries uh, will will feed off the the the, the fears and. Uh, and and experiences of people during this pandemic to to justify even in in direct and 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 even in indirect and emotional ways uh, the limitations on on migration or just the the failure to uh, to to expand lawful pathways for migration out of a a generalized uh, distaste for the the subject of foreigners. Um, and I, I promise we'd return to the question of emergency measures. Um, this sort of permanent restrictions to mobility is, is, as you say, a kind of future pandemics question. But the current pandemic, um, we're still having conversations about whether border closures are justifiable under any conditions. And a distinction is often made between the containment phase, so when perhaps you have sufficiently low cases that you're able to trace them to essentially create a, a watertight border, which is, I think, the situation that Australia and New Zealand found themselves in. Now they're trying to create a sort of biosecure border and have sufficiently low number of cases that you can manage it. Do you see emergency measures as justifiable um, at that phase? So, yes. Uh, we. there there is definitely a world uh in which we can kind of see emergency travel restrictions as as justified and potentially helpful and again as you said that's really not where our kind of paper and where uh our expertise or where the evidence that we're generating uh is kind of speaking to we are allowing for kind of uh emergency restrictions to really uh potentially ramp up and potentially be very effective uh, or not, once a, a pandemic uh, is is identified and we kind of know that the pathogen is spreading. But to kind of address your question directly, so now that we are in this world currently with, with COVID and with kind of situations like uh, New Zealand and Australia, 
there very well could be in this, uh, you know, in this kind of containment phase of either where you know that a pandemic is uh, is is spreading, but you don't have any confirmed cases. Uh, it, it's it's possible that an emergency travel restriction can uh, can be effective, although the the public health literature is. Uh, is is not uh, very kind of high or positive on, on on certain things necessarily, or if you're in the case of uh, of New Zealand where you've kind of crushed uh, the the reproductive rate and, and where kind of um, the you'd be reintroducing uh, the disease mostly by kind of travel that you could uh, there there could be a role for uh, for emergency travel restrictions. Mm-hmm. There's also the the sort of upper threshold so we're talking about like the the lower threshold of cases where as you say New Zealand has kind of crushed COVID and has very few cases but there's also when you're trying to reduce travel of all kinds which is the situation that a lot of countries found themselves in earlier this year so it you know it's sometimes described as the mitigation phase they're trying to reduce all human interactions and mobility of all kinds and border restrictions becomes a very easy way to to do that and also prevents the sort of thousands of people funneling through points of entry problem you know in many ways airports are like massive sports stadiums and if you lock down sporting events you might also want to lock down airports do you think emergency measures work in in that phase so here, there, there's uh, there, there's some some evidence that that we present, and there's evidence from from uh, 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 public health experts as well. The what what we do in the in the in our paper is put together for the first time the the rate of spread in a comparable way between these uh, uh, four past influenza pandemics. Uh, 1889, 1918, 1957, 2009, uh, and, and you can compare them with the, the coronavirus pandemic, asking the question, for example, uh, after international spread began, uh, when were the, 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 when were each grouping of people uh, uh, on earth uh, reached by the pandemic? How fast did it uh, spread around the world? And uh, I say grouping of people because uh, country borders changed a lot over that that time period. And what we do is is do the analysis in a way that holds country borders constant. Uh, that is, we're, we're talking about when did the pandemic of 1889 uh, reach the the area of land uh, that is today first uh, Sudan, for example, uh, compared to when uh, coronavirus reached uh, uh, Sudan. And the bottom line is that uh, for the median person on Earth. Uh, 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 the, the the coronavirus pandemic actually arrived slower uh, than the 1889 influenza pandemic. So uh, racing across the world uh, started in what's now Uzbekistan. Uh, within a few months, it had gone all around the world, and uh, it had actually uh, touched the, these areas of land, today's modern countries, where where more than half of the population of the world was living. Uh, sooner than coronavirus did that. And think about 1889, where people are still traveling by sailing ship in some cases. Uh, by any measure, the speed and, and extent of international travel, international migration are, are less than a tenth of, of what they are today. And you still get comparable rates of, of, of spread. And really, uh, uh, the, the, the reason that that happens is, is because of uh, the, the the point that you're getting out of during this mitigation phase, once the once the 
the virus has arrived uh, in your country uh, very, very rapidly, the way that that epidemic di dynamics play out is that the the you are uh, very quickly at a much greater risk of catching the pathogen from locals rather than than new arrivals, and a uh, a team at the at the uh, London School of uh, Hygiene, Tropical Medicine, and the University of Hong Kong actually did this calculation uh, for May of 2020. Uh, uh, if nothing had happened to travel, uh, that is, there were no emergency travel restrictions in the world in 2020, and no change in the willingness of people to travel in 2020. So just take the the, the levels of travel between countries from the previous year, May 2019 apply them to May 2020, and then ask uh, what fraction of the incident infections, the new infections that people were acquiring in May of, of this year, would have been from travelers and would have been from locals by that time. And the answer is that for, uh, for the vast majority of countries on Earth, it would have been less than 10% of incident infections would have been from travelers. And for about half the countries on Earth, it would have been less than 1% of incident infections would have been coming from travelers. And again, this is if even if nothing had happened to travel. So basically, when the, the, the pathogen gets to your borders, and that's, that is going to happen relatively soon if you have any meaningful degree of connection with the world, unless you're just totally cut off or a very isolated uh, island, uh, very, very soon, the, the risk is, is from is from other locals. It has nothing to do with people arriving from abroad, and that then uh, domestic measures are paramount. Mask wearing, domestic mobility, are people staying at home, uh, are people going to mass gatherings, all of the things that uh, that countries have been doing to very very different degrees, and that is why uh, the country uh, Thailand, which had the first case outside of China, January thirteenth, uh, a week before the United States, Thailand had before the pandemic, twice as many travelers from China each day as the United States did. And uh, here we are uh, late in this year. Uh, at this moment, if uh, with the, 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 the Thai mortality rate from this pandemic, if Thailand had the same population as the United States with their mortality rate, there would have been 284 total cumulative deaths to date. Uh, while, while here we, we, we stand with 250,000 in the U.S. Uh, so clearly uh, the, oh, oh and I, I might add that uh, Thailand didn't actually restrict China from travel until late March. The United States did it on January 30th. So there's, there's, uh, this is an illustration, this uh, uh, not, a, not a proof, but an illustration of the of the the paramountcy of behind the border interventions, what countries are doing uh, to to uh, restrict interactions between people inside the country to change the probability of transmission at those interactions inside the country are vastly more important than the degree of interconnection, which again was much greater for China, uh, for Thailand uh, and, and China than the U.S. and China, uh, and the and e and even the degree of uh, uh, or, or exact timing of, of travel restrictions. Mm -hmm. There's such a gap, isn't there, between um, what the public thinks works and the sort of desire for these big symbolic gestures and what the evidence says. I think it was interesting when you mentioned the, the UK academics who put together that study, but it was interesting that the UK had some scientists advising it on, on border policy and resisted introducing quarantine 
and border measures when other countries had, but then under quite a lot of public pressure, decided to follow suit. And they tried for a while to say, oh, but, you know, community spread is such that it won't make any difference. But it was described as the number one concern that constituents um, reported to MPs. So it's it's an interesting challenge for us as as researchers, I think. I, I think it's exactly right. I think we kind of, you know, we know that the disease came from abroad and right in every country except for one where it originated, right? It came from someone traveling abroad who who brought it and we just it's very hard to get that kind of mental uh mental image kind of overturned of where the kind of most threat uh is is coming from then as as the pandemic uh, evolves, but but as you say, it, it's uh, the the evidence says otherwise. I mean, now so uh, at the beginning stages of the pandemic, of course, uh, you know Chinese travelers to the United States, for instance, represented obviously they uh, you know had a higher chance of uh, potentially of, of bringing COVID to the United States. But now, uh, you know, a, a a Chinese traveler coming to the U.S. would uh, would decrease the prevalence in the U.S. on average because the, the disease is, is so much lower there than it is here uh, that, that, you know, it, it's very hard to kind of get that to to, to put to, to reverse that mental image uh, and, and kind of make that stick for people. Mm-hmm. OK, so final question. I'm going to push you back into the the real world. Um, we we. Um, we're having this conversation, but in many ways, the you know the stable door is open, the horse is bolted. We already have border closures. We already have conversations about um, health screening, and we are facing, um, I think, uh, another year, twenty twenty one, with quite significant restrictions to mobility. I mean, one thing I've been thinking about is if you have vaccine take up are highly differentiated rates and then there's a real global imbalance in infection spread um what happens then to discussions about reducing mobility uh we, we talked before about how uh, uh greatly different prevalence of vaccine take up need not be a major barrier to global mobility uh, I talked about yellow fever earlier. The very few Americans have a yellow fever vaccine because there isn't yellow fever in the United States meaningfully. But for many countries uh, to, to go there, they, they they want you to have yellow fever vaccine. And alongside your passport, you need to prove that you're vaccinated against yellow fever. That uh, the, uh, the, the requirement to get vaccinated for travel in the presence of a cheap, uh, a quick and highly effective vaccine uh, need not uh, cripple mobility, even in the in the presence of vast differences in the in the fractions of populations that are that are vaccinated. So, the, uh, very low uh, access to the vaccine initially uh, in low income countries, which is highly problematic for many reasons unrelated to mobility, but is likely to be the case, need not uh, cut them off from from global travel. Thomas. Yeah, I mean, I, I would totally agree. I mean, I think we're we're, we're kind of and so far been kind of operating uh, in a world where where there is is no vaccine, as we kind of talked about earlier, right? Even even those emergency travel restrictions in in most cases are are really kind of um, you know not 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 buying us very much. So in a world where more people are are vaccinated, 
uh, and we can kind of reduce reduce the global spread. That's obviously going going to help, but doesn't necessarily mean that then we should all of a sudden make the the vaccine kind of the only way that, that people people can travel. Obviously, we want that kind of as as widely spread available as as possible, but uh, just kind of reducing the the overall. Um, travel the overall uh spread of the pandemic will help kind of everywhere that in kind of the, the more connected world overall great well thank you so much both of you this has been a really interesting discussion thanks for your time thank you very much thank you megan i really like michael's metaphor of a speed limit so even if you severely cut migration and mobility it would barely make a dent on the global spread of an epidemic so only offer a delay of a matter of days. Instead, as he said, what really makes a difference is domestic measures. So travel restrictions can actually be a distraction if they're basically symbolic crowd-pleasing measures that detract from a thoughtful policy response. I also thought it was interesting that their research finds that previous pandemics have spread faster if you control for other factors. So there isn't something special about the 21st century and its particular brand of globalization that makes us more susceptible to pandemics. Of course, the question on the table for this pandemic isn't what conditions stop initial spread, but how and whether we should prevent travel and mobility, even within countries, as part of a raft of social distancing measures, especially while we await production and take up of vaccines. And I still think that there's a research gap there we're really missing some crucial evidence and I warmly invite anyone working on this topic or who has any thoughts on this to get in touch with me. In the meantime, if you want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast, Moving Beyond Pandemic, wherever you find your podcasts. You can also access it through our website, which is migrationpolicy.org forward slash podcasts. And you can find Michael and Thomas's paper on their website, which is cgdev.org. I'd like to thank my colleagues, Lisa Dixon, Michelle Mittelstadt, and Kenya Guerrero for producing this podcast. And the music you heard today was Juno in the Space Maze by Loopop. I'm Megan Benton. I will see you next time. <laughs>